0: Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown the Podcast. From the historic Zone Radio
1: studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball.
2: Hey, hello again. Welcome. It's Downtown the Podcast. You Push the right button. Mission accomplished. Rich Kimball here, along with Carrie Haskell for episode number 206. And this one, like all of them, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Coming up this week on the podcast, a couple of great conversations. In part two, we talk with Guy Raz and Mindy Thomas. They host the Wow in the World podcast. They've got a brand new book out. Great book for kids and and people who know kids called Wow in the Wild. A wonderful, fascinating look at the animal kingdom. We'll we'll talk with them about that a little bit later on. But uh, we begin it with one of the most acclaimed actors of her or any other time. We're talking about Jane Alexander. Two Emmy Awards, six nominations. One Tony Award, eight nominations. Four Academy Award nominations through the years. Has appeared in landmark films like Kramer vs. Kramer, All the President's Men, The Great White Hope, Testament. Some memorable television appearances, too, in Eleanor and Franklin, Playing for Time, Warm Springs also a very active uh, environmentalist conservationist former chair of the national endowment for the arts as well we had a wonderful time talking with the multi-talented jane alexander jane thank you so much uh, for being with us tonight you're joining us from nova scotia and i know your your family's roots go back what to the mid 1700s when your your mother's people settled there
1: that's right rich yeah they came over on one of the first boats uh from germany uh, in 1751, the they were they were not mercenary fighters. They were mercenary colonialists. <laughs> uh, the uh, the Brits a- engaged them to come over.
2: That that must give you a wonderful sense of connection to the land.
1: It does. I honestly think it's in my DNA. It's uh it's remarkable how at home I feel here. And and you have to be pretty hardy. Even in this day and age, to live on the North Atlantic, it's it's rough.
2: <laughs> well, absolutely, certainly during the winter time and and what passes for spring.
1: Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly.
2: Well, I, I know when you were little, uh, your dad was a surgeon uh, helping victims of World War II uh, over in the UK, and your mother moved the family uh, to Brookline, and you were you were at the location that had been the headquarters of Frederick Law Olmstead's firm, and and that essentially was your playground how did that shape the person you became
1: uh, that's a wonderful question because i was thinking about it just recently uh because it's coming on the 100th anniversary of olmstead and um maybe more than 100 years 200
2: his 200th yeah. birthday next week
1: wow <laughs> wow well he built um this place in Brookline, Massachusetts on 99 Warren Street for his own personal home. And then he had a room for the um, landscape draft architects uh, or a building right next door. So growing up, I, I there was a lot of tension for everybody who grew up during World War II, no matter how far you were away. My, our mothers were alone. My mom shared the house with another woman and uh, the, her children. And um there was a lot of beauty though. That's what I loved about the Olmsted estate. You can imagine he was such a great landscape architect. And he was uh, and he he just may, had a sunken garden with wonderful little plants and all kinds of little frogs and toads were in there and, and beautiful magnolia trees. It was my first introduction to birds and nature. I loved it.
2: Well, we're we're coming up uh, on Earth Day here, and as we get to that point, there doesn't seem to be, from my perspective, a, a real sense of urgency among some of our leaders and, and certainly some of our citizens to to take care of the planet. How do we how do we change that? What can we do? Those of us who believe this is the issue of our times.
1: Well, it certainly remains the issue of our time, but we have a big other issue, of course, um, with the war with COVID, with all kinds of um, other problems that are going on that have been there before. But this is the big one, This, this, this climate change one is the major one of our lifetimes and our ongoing children's generation. So it's the one we really have to capture and take control of very, very soon. We all know that. I think it's in us to do that it's just that we are constantly needing to address these other issues at the same time. I, I don't think it's gonna go away, um, Chris uh, Rich. I think it's really going to be right there in us all the time. So I do see changes. I see them incrementally with people, the way they approach uh, food, the way they approach energy systems in their own home. So I, I think we're making progress
2: you've uh, traveled the world to protect uh, animals and wildlife. And I, I read an interview where you referred to yourself as a, a self-taught naturalist.
1: <laughs> yes, I was self-taught because, um, I really got into birds after my husband and I moved to the country about 60 miles North of New York city in Putnam County way back in the early seventies. And, uh, I was also working a great deal, um, in many places in the United States and in in the world, doing films, theater, and so on. And I wanted a hobby, so I took along some binoculars and a local guide, not a person, (laughs) because I couldn't really rely on having a person all the time because I didn't know what my shooting schedule was. So um, I just would take a a guidebook, and, and I taught myself a lot. And in some ways, I found it a, 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 a fine education because when you have to work very hard yourself to do identification, it sticks in your brain or parts of your brain better, I think, than somebody just pointing out a bird and let's move on.
2: My father-in-law is a, a birder and uh, along with giving you that incredible respect for the animals that are around us, it's also such a wonderful opportunity to find a peace and quiet and solitude of your own.
1: Absolutely. And I think many, many people during the COVID uh, have discovered that for themselves if they didn't have it already. It's my temple. Uh, the world outside, my backyard is my temple. And I don't care how big or small your backyard is, there's always lots to find there. I have friends who have peregrine falcons who come in and sit on their window boxes in New York City, you know, forty floors up. So you can find it anywhere.
2: We're talking with Jane Alexander here on downtown. At my full-time job. I'm a high school teacher. I work with young theater students, so I know the importance of teachers. Uh, what was it? Was it Mrs. Ramsdell who lit a bit of a fire under you?
1: Uh-huh. Well, Mrs. Ramsdell, good for you, Rich. <laughs> you really did your homework. She was an, a wonderful English teacher. She really encouraged me in writing. And then there was another um, teacher who came in, it was an after-curricular program, and um, she, Mrs. Brown, and she she was the one who really introduced me to theater after school. And she was the one who, when I was 16, said, took me aside after we had a rehearsal of a play, and she said, um, Jane, I think that you can make a living at this. Wow, wow. That was amazing because my dear Nova Scotia mother didn't know theater or film from anything, and she didn't know what I was going to do in my life (laughs) to make a living. So my dad was a little more understanding, and he, he actually encouraged me because he had wanted to be an actor himself at one point he turned to medicine thankfully <laughs> but he encouraged me so I did have one person in the family who and and Miss Brown now I had
2: a, a mrs Brown who uh, was a big encouragement to me she was a speech teacher and when I walked into her class she went through the role and she saw my name and she said Kimball no I I don't believe you're a Kimball I you're a Gilbert. I shall refer to you as Gilbert from now on. <laughs> oh,
1: oh, oh. oh, my goodness. She took away your name. Oh.
2: Until the day she died, I would run into her. Oh, Gilbert, how are you, darling? <laughs> <laughs> uh, was it, it uh, Was it Long John Silver? Was that the role that, uh, <laughs> that got you started?
1: Yeah, pretty good. I think I was in... Either third grade, fourth or fifth. I can't remember when I played Long John Silver, but I had a lot of fun doing it and a great accent and a great peg leg and a parrot on my shoulder, (laughs) fake, and I got a lot of laughs. Whoa, loved it.
2: Now, how did you end up uh, at Arena Stage in Washington, I believe, uh, playing Joan of Arc?
1: That's right, yes. Um, Well, I... I made a list when I was 16 about of all the plays that I wanted to do. This is in the classic repertoire. And uh, George Bernard Shaw came up pretty strong on several of them. Uh, So St. Joan was on my list to play. And I even auditioned for Otto Preminger for the film, but I didn't get it. Uh, Gene Seberg got the role. Uh, But when I was in my early 20s, a fellow in New York called me up and said, Jane, they're doing St. Joan at Arena Stage and I think you need to audition. So I did and for my future husband, Ed Sharon, who was the artistic director at the time. And uh, I got the role. And it was my first big role in regional theater. And I loved every minute of playing Shaw's St. Joan.
2: And of course it was at arena stage that the great white hope was originally developed. And, and some would say irony, I would say perfect symmetry that that production was made possible because of grants from the national endowment for the arts. And of course, later you would become the chair.
1: That's correct. Yes. There was a $25,000 grant to the playwright of the great white hope, Howard Sackler to develop the play at arena stage. And, uh, of course it went on to huge uh, fortune and fame for him and uh fame for the theater but not fortune it was the first regional theater production to ever transfer to broadway but it didn't get a cut of the profits <laughs> so it was the first and the last because every other transfer after that got of course recognition and a cut of the profits so um, it, was, it was very exciting. And when I came to be chair of the National Endowment for the Arts, I remembered that NEA grant to the Great White Hope, which had made my career, and uh, I wanted to give something back. And that's how I came to be chair of the National Endowment for the Arts.
2: The Great White Hope was such an important play and then successful motion picture as well. Now, here we are 50 years later, and it seems in many ways like our progress on, on racial issues has not only halted but has gone in reverse. is that to be is that to be expected? This was never going to be a, a straight line to getting where we would like to be as a country?
1: Uh, that's a, a difficult question to answer. I do feel though rich since I, w- I was very active in the civil rights movement as many people were, uh, although it was more um, a movement where African Americans, wanted to march more on their own, and we were supporting them. Now we're all, at least we're hooking arms together and working for Black Lives Matter and uh, and learning more and more about Black history for ourselves and making sure there's less and less discrimination. So I do think that there is a lot of progress, but my late husband, Ed, Sharon, always said, he said, this was this country was born a racist country. We have to understand that, and we have to work very, very hard, and it's going to take generations and generations to end it. And I like to believe that my grandchildren today are the ones who are going to end it because I don't see any racist uh, attitudes in them at all.
2: And yet it's, it's horrifying as an educator to see the attacks on education in this country and to, to witness people who, who believe somehow that the teaching the truth about American history is a bad thing.
1: I know. Well, that's shocking, but you know, for every we're in a we're in a time of extremes, and we know well those of us who have lived long lives like myself uh, that the pendulum will swing and it will start to go the other way. But uh, Martin Luther King said, it, "The arc of justice is 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 long, but uh, it, it, it will swing back." It's just a really really difficult time in the world right now, and I think we're going to go through an awful lot of pain. Uh, and violence, unfortunately.
2: I-, I want to talk about some of your other film roles. I was re-watching All the President's Men recently. It- it's such a remarkable film, and uh, uh, you don't have a lot of screen time, but you were so compelling in those moments you have. And-, and that film, to me, holds up very well as a great reminder of a number of things, but m- most of all, the importance, the value of a free press in a democratic society.
1: Oh, yes, indeed, a free press. And What does a free press mean? That's the dialogue that we're having now in the world with social media. And I find it really fascinating and a very difficult topic because, all right, what's if I want to speak my mind on things, shouldn't we let everybody speak their mind on things and let, let human nature balance the whole thing itself? Well, it's a hard question to answer. I'm glad we're having the dialogue, but boy, I don't I. I think I think
2: we have to have it free. Uh, Kramer versus Kramer also had a chance to rewatch that again and cried like a baby, as I did the first several times I saw. it. Uh, your character of Margaret is is so important. I think she grounds the film in a, in a reality and an honesty. And I think one of the things that makes it great is that she and Ted remain friends. There was no hint of a romantic relationship And and that was unusual, I think, for films of that time period. There might have been a a tendency to want that to happen. It was so much more effective with you being a support system for each other.
1: I agree, Rich. I think that it's a beautiful film because of that relationship. There's no hint of any romance ever developing. It's just that they're both gone through a rough time, um, separation and divorce with kids. And... Uh, yeah, I love that relationship too. And Dest- Dustin and I had a lot of fun.
2: Uh, testament. I'm not afraid to tell you, scared me to death when I saw it. What uh, what a powerful film! What a, a dark film, and yet one whose message that we've seemed to have ignored in the last 39 years or so.
1: Yes, and we're coming up right against it, right against it, right now. The film is about um, nuclear annihilation. In San Francisco, particularly all the missiles dropping there, and we live—my family in the film lives—outside of San Francisco, and um, we 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 continue to live for as long as radiation poisoning doesn't get us, which it gets us in the end. And that's something that we really have to remember: is that it's it's dropping a, a major poison on the world, uh, uh, on the world. So. Here we are with the talk of nuclear weapons possibly happening, uh, and it's the most scary thing to my mind, and I was just thinking this morning, I woke up in the middle of the night actually, and I said, oh my gosh, here's my nightmare, come back to haunt me again uh, 50 years later, because I had a, had a nightmare, that um, a recurring nightmare that went on for almost 10 years where Uh, 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 three of my kids and myself were coming back from a hiking and camping overnight trip and we see leaflets pouring from the sky from planes and thousands of people walking north out of New York City and the leaflets say, do not eat any shellfish, anything that's in the water here. The water is poisoned. And then we... We try desperately to get back home to see my husband and our other son, and we're we're stopped, we're barricaded. The boys sit down by a little pond, and we lay down in the trees, and they go and collect clams, and they start to eat them. And that's the end of my nightmare. And I used to wake up in a cold sweat, and then I became very active in the in stopping the proliferation of nuclear weapons and all kinds of nuclear uh, things that make radiation. And um, that was during the 70s. And after I became very active and was giving speeches to stop all kinds, of, and going abroad to, with groups of other women for, for uh, nuclear summits and things like that, uh, my nightmare disappeared, and now I feel it coming back again. Because we're, we've, we've lost that memory of the horror of it.
2: Well, and not only that, but, but in, in some way, there was a certain level of safety when you had leaders who understood that nobody wins in that situation. And, and you'd have to be willing to sacrifice your own people. And there are clearly leaders in the world right now who, who might be OK with that.
1: Well, exactly, that's what it was called mad, mutually assured destruction that we all understood. If you if you hit us, we're going to hit you back. But it, it seems like today they're thinking, oh well, we got through Chernobyl, We got through um, uh, the atom bombs. Uh, we're going to get through this. No, no. We're not going to get through this.
2: We're talking with Jane Alexander here on Downtown. Uh, Your career was going very well when President Clinton reached out to you. Was there some reluctance to take on the role as chair of the the National Endowment for the Arts? Because you knew that that would be incredibly time consuming.
1: Oh, well, I knew it would be time consuming, but it also was a great honor, Rich. It really was. Uh, The NEA was under an awful lot of uh, onslaught from um, mainly conservatives in, in Congress. Who wanted to end end it because of a couple of grants they felt were egregious, mainly the um, the homoerotic photographs of um,
2: Was that Maplethorpe Robert Maplethorpe?
1: Yeah, that's right, Robert Maplethorpe, and um, uh, Serrano's beautiful photograph called he named it "Piss Christ." Right. It's actually it's a it's actually a photograph of a crucifix. In beer bubbles, um, but piss made it seem like it was in urine. Uh, but any, in any case, th- these were about to bring the whole agency down. These grants, which were not directly to the artists, by the way, uh, but they were part of uh, museum re- uh, or gallery museum retrospective. And anyway, uh, I came in at a rough time, but as I say, I really love the agency because uh, it really made the arts possible all across the United States of America. It came in as an agency under Lyndon Johnson in 1965, and it just had seeded the arts everywhere, which, which was very exciting to, to me, and I wanted to give back because of the, uh, the grant to the Great White Hope in Arena Stage. It was a very, very difficult four years. Uh, we were really up, when Newt Gingrich and um, the, the uh, Republican Congress, the first Republican total Congress in, in 40 years came in, in 1995, uh, I, it looked like the agency was going to go under. But you know what? The American people were great. I traveled to all 50 states. I saw and met with people everywhere and tried to explain what the NEA did, that most of the grants that we gave were matched by the community. And that's how the arts proliferated. And I said, So that little uh, dance studio that you take your child after school is an NEA grantee. And don't you want to keep that? Yes, yes. People began to understand what the NEA did. And it was as positive and as nonpartisan an organization that you could possibly get. And so they were the ones that let their people in Congress know to keep the N.E.A. alive, We won by one vote in
2: the end. Well, and, and the culture wars, which which continue today, they succeed at whatever level they do by, by putting things in the abstract. But when you get to people's community and say, this is what the arts actually are, they are that dance group, they are that community theater organization, and people always want to support that because they know it's the lifeblood of any community. But uh, in the big picture, whether it's, whether it's an art exhibition or whether it's the the monolith of disney uh today easier to paint that as a, a bad guy in the abstract
1: absolutely or that artists uh, all we have to do is look at the stars on the screen the artists don't need help oh no they don't need help they are all make lots of money well that you know that's like 0.1% of the people are the big stars they they may take a lot of money off the top but The average artist is not a wealthy person by any matter of means. They hardly make it.
2: Uh, I've enjoyed a great deal of your recent work. You were great in Modern Love, which was a a wonderful series.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
2: You were back on Broadway on Grand Horizons, another Tony nomination for that. Are there returns to, to go back to Broadway at some point?
1: I don't know if I'll go back to Broadway because... Uh, first of all, that play just was wonderful and drew me in so much. Playing this, uh, this wonderful woman who, who Nancy, who just lived with her, her husband for 50, 60 years, long, long marriage. Well, it was the fiftieth wedding anniversary when the play starts, and she says, "I think I'd like a divorce." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh boy, okay, there's a story here. Let's get that, get to that." And that's what the whole thing was—that she really had never had a life of her own. It had all been based on her husband, and what he wanted and everything. So it's it was a funny, charming play, and it drew me in. But you know, Rich, um, I'm in my 80s now, and it takes an awful lot of stamina to do a show on Broadway uh, eight nights, eight times a week. And uh, I found I couldn't do anything else. The truth is, It cut into my birding time. So (laughs) I don't think I'm going to do another play on Broadway. I've had a wonderful career. I've done, you know, dozens of plays in New York, um, regional theater, all around the world. And I'm grateful for every bit, but I don't have to do anymore.
2: I did see an interview where you said, uh, perhaps tongue in cheek, that your goal was to become the oldest ever Oscar winner.
1: Yes. Well, I saw that Tony Hopkins two years ago won uh, for the father at the age of 83. And uh, Tony and I and Marsha Mason were in a wonderful production of old times, Harold Pinter's old times at the Roundabout Theater in New York way, way back in the 70s. And, uh, we got to know each other and i and i have such admiration for both marcia and tony and i thought well if tony can do it at 83 i think (laughs) i can best him and get an oldest actress actor male or female ever uh in the future because i'm already almost 83 so there we go
2: (laughs) (laughs) well whatever work you do whether it's stage or film or television it, it seems to me that your characters are always imbued with uh, an honesty, but also with a dignity. Uh, is that does that come from having respect for whoever you're playing, whoever's life you're going to make your own for that moment?
1: Oh my gosh, I don't know, but thank you for the compliment. I uh, I I have played some pretty heinous characters too in my life. You know, people who won't take responsibility for murder and or. or mayhem of any sort. Um, but I think one always has, when you're playing any character, you have to understand it from their point of view. And, uh, so I find the murderer in me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, you have to understand what made them do whatever it is they did.
1: That's right. That's right. And they have their reasons.
2: Well, Jane, uh, it's been an absolute delight to talk with you. I've been a fan of and appreciated your work for many, many years. Not only your work as an actor, but uh, everything you do for the arts and for the environment, for wildlife. Uh, you're, you're a great role model to a whole lot of people.
1: Well, thank you very much, I'm Rich. <laughs> I'm so, I was thinking, I'm sorry, I just want to say one last thing because uh, I work with a, a fellow in Maine who is a fabulous birder ornithologist, Jeff Wells, and he works for Audubon. And what we're doing now is protection of the boreal forests of the Northern United States and Canada. Maine is, you know, one of our great ones.
2: Jane, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful pleasure talking with you.
1: Thank you, Rich. I appreciate it.
2: That's Jane Alexander here on Downtown. We'll take a break for a word from our friends at Cross Insurance. And when we come back, The hosts of Wow in the World, Guy Raz and Mindy Thomas, right after this.
0: Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We're proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit crossinsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Someone
1: told me it's all happening at the zoo. I do believe it. I do believe it's true.
2: Our next guests on Downtown are the hosts of the Wow in the World podcast. Authors and uh, podcast hosts and incredibly popular among a couple of generations of folks. We're talking about Guy Raz and Mindy Thomas. They've got a brand new book out called Wow in the Wild, The Amazing World of Animals. We had a chance to talk to Guy and Mindy recently here on downtown. Hello, Guy. Hello, Mindy. Hello. Thank you so much for being with us today. We're excited to to have you board. Uh, My son is also equally excited because he's a big fan of everything you guys do. Oh, oh, that's awesome! So <laughs> well, the book is an absolute delight. Uh, it, it's and it doesn't matter what age you are. I am uh, probably out of the target demographic, but I had a blast reading through this.
0: Well, you, Rick, are, you
3: are right in. You are <laughs> in the target demographic. <laughs> this book is designed for for you. It's designed for grownups. It's designed for kids. It's designed to be read together be for for people to laugh out loud and to learn about real science all together so you are right in our demo
2: well you had me right with the opening quiz are you a bird i was hooked
0: (laughs) did you pass uh
2: i am not a bird apparently (laughs) (laughs) i had some doubts for a while
0: are you a mammal
2: (laughs) yeah i am a mammal yeah i did pass that with flying colors That's important. Absolutely. That's important.
3: And, 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 and by the way, mammals are – we have a whole section in the book called Mammals Just Like Us. Yes. You might find that in Us Weekly magazine. You know, celebrities are just like us. Mammals are just like us too. They take care of their kids. They get mad. They have secret languages. And we learn all about that in, in our chapter on mammals.
2: Well, let me ask you both this uh, individually. Let, let's start with you, Mindy. What what you two do so very well in the podcast and, and, and this book and, and your others as well is that, and I teach school, I older kids, I teach high schoolers, but the name of the game, I think, and you guys nailed it, is if you make learning fun, often there's a lot more learning that takes place. Yeah, we.
0: I mean, I grew up not not loving science in elementary school. I didn't really think it was for me. And you know, it wasn't until I got older that I realized this is amazing. And that scientists think like kids think. They're they're not afraid to ask questions and not know the answers. They're not afraid of of trying something out and having it fail. Uh, and I want kids to to see themselves in scientists and see themselves in in these experiments that are being done. So there's no reason it has to be. I mean, even when I look at some of these studies, I think, does this need to be this complicated the way this is written? And so that's our job is to communicate it to kids and their parents who are just regular people like us and make it accessible to everyone. And so that's what we do on our podcast. That's what we've done in this book. And I don't think we have to make it fun. I think it is fun. But we, we like to take we're a little over the top sometimes. So we like to take it uh, a step further and. And really come up with unique and inventive ways of just of sharing some of this information
2: isn't that the, that's the key isn't it guy that the kids do uh, approach the world like scientists do, asking questions of everything
3: they do I mean anybody who's experienced a a three year old or a four year old knows that they're an endless parade of questions and you know and 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 I think that one of the things we've been able to do, with both with our podcast, Wow in the World, and with our book, Wow in the Wild, for us as adults is to kind of recapture that sense of awe and wonder. You know, we lose that as we become adults. We stop asking questions. We stop looking at the stars and wondering how far away are those stars. And, and as kids, you know, you, you walk around the, uh, on the sidewalk with a kid, and they'll just stop and look at an insect, or they'll stop to look at a flower, and there are things that we are wired as humans to do. And so in, in many ways, writing this book and working on our, our science podcast Wow in the World, you know, as silly as, as those 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 the, the book and the podcasts are, they are rooted in real hard science. They they are designed to, to withstand any scrutiny from a scientist. And in fact, we work with a lot of scientists because we want kids to learn real things about science, but we we also want to encourage them to keep asking questions. And, and making this book, making our podcast, that's what it does to us. It, it sort of allows us to recapture that sense of awe that we had as kids.
2: We're talking with Guy Raz, Mindy Thomas. The new book is Wow in the Wild, The Amazing World of Animals. And uh, Mindy, one of the great things about the book, along with the wonderful information, the great humor, the amazing illustrations of Jack Teagle. I'm looking at the the shape-shifting sea cucumber and how awesome that uh, is. And that really makes the book come to life.
0: Yeah. How amazing is it that there is a cucumber of the sea, first of all. (laughs) And so you're talking about the animal Avengers series where we made kind of a (laughs) wow comic club and we created these, um, these these comic, these these fake comic book covers based (laughs) on the electric eel, the immortal jellyfish, the shape-shifting cucumber and on the covers of these, we have real factual information, but laid out like you would see on a comic book cover. So, the, you know, the, the shape-shifting cucumber, non-essential organs, eject and distract. <laughs> Watch in amazement as it transformed its body from rock solid to super squishy. That's all true. But Jack Keegel took this idea of a, of a comic book cover and ran with it. These are so funny. They look real.
2: And, Guy, because I have an 8-year-old boy and because I am still an 8-year-old boy at heart, I was, of course, drawn to the parade of poopers. Yes.
3: (laughs) And, and, you know, before anybody judges, just bear, bear with us for a moment, but poop is science. You know, there is a lot of science that you can learn from poop, and poop has been one of the vehicles, not the only one, not the primary one, but one of the vehicles we have used to get kids excited about science. Um, we, we do talk about it on our show, Wow in the World, and, of course, we talk about it in this book because there's a lot to learn about, about animals, about what they consume, what they eat, how they digest food, um, the shape of poop, um, and, and how other animals can contract other animals um, through what they leave behind. So it's funny. We all laugh about it, but it, it's, it's science. It's real, and it's a way to engage kids and, and I think even parents, too. So many cool things. If your
0: kids are going to talk about poop, at least give them some scientific information to back it up. Absolutely, (laughs) yes. That's our job.
2: So many cool things that I learned in reading through the book, including the loudest animal on the planet I would not have guessed.
3: There you go. And on top of that, you're going to learn about which which is the only mammal that can fly. Um, You're going to learn about an ant that can swim 10 times faster than Michael Phelps about a a particular sea creature that has a a fin span about as wide as a small airplane.
0: You want to know my favorite, Rich? Absolutely. There is a louse who lives off the coast of California, and it will attach itself to the tongue of a red snapper, eat the tongue of the red snapper, and replace the tongue with its own body. So the snapper opens its mouth, (laughs) and it's got a louse for a tongue
2: ah uh, i never want to run into the mekong giant catfish
0: oh no 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 gosh the, the underwater we found some of the the most unusual i mean these are like these are the these are monsters in some cases. <laughs> when I think yeah. of monsters now i think of some of these deep deep sea creatures one of the
2: wonderful things about the book, too, is after uh, kids have been uh, exposed to all of this knowledge and learned so much about animals, then uh, toward the back of the book, there's a, a wonderful resource and a guide to making sure that this wildlife stays around. And, and that's certainly a big part of your message is preserving wildlife here on planet Earth.
3: Yeah, we, we didn't want to leave kids with a sense of despair either, Rich. You know, we, we, we don't want kids, of course... It's a challenging time in human history. Every single day, 150 species go extinct. But we also want kids to feel empowered that they have a role to play in preserving our planet and protecting our, our wildlife. Um, and so, we talk about species, animal species that were on the brink of extinction, but that were saved through human behavior and the changes in human behavior. And there are ways kids and adults can can participate in this. We we you know we we offer a few tips like planting native pollinating plants or even doing things like eating a little bit less meat. We even suggest that kids should try insects because it's a great source of protein and it's really good for the planet. Um, and, and for kids to get involved in the Half Earth Project, which was inspired by E.O. Wilson, um, the famed biologist, who talked about setting aside half of the Earth's land for, for nature and for animals. And And if we did that, we we might just be able to save this amazing planet of ours.
2: Well, and and for kids who uh, quite often are caught up in in devices and uh, surreal, unreal worlds, what a great reminder to to get outside, take a look around, and you'll find much more excitement out there in the in the animal kingdom and right in your own driveway than you will on your device.
0: That's what we hope.
2: Well, it, it works I if you read this, this book. book. It is wonderful. The book is Wow in the Wild, The Amazing World of Animals. My little guy's going to be pretty impressed that I talked to you, too. I love the work that you do. Thank you so much for spending time with us today and to keep on doing what you do. Thanks Thank so much, Rich. Rich. That's Guy Raz, Mindy Thomas, talking about their brand new book, Wow in the Wild, The Amazing World of Animals. Thanks to Mindy and Guy and, of course, to the wonderful Jane Alexander. And thanks to you for joining us on Downtown This Week. We'll catch you next time here on Downtown, the podcast.